the case dot report. Welcome everyone to this month's episode of the Case.Report. Orla Kelly is my name and I'll be your host for this month's little episode. We're dealing with the smallies this month, so velcro up the runners or buckle up the car seat or get the sippy cup and sit back and relax into this month's Peedsy Pod. First up, we have our case with TCR trainees Carl and Stephen taking a start to finish through a tense Peeds case. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our case for this month. Joining me, we have TCOR legend Carl Kavanagh. Hello, Carl. How are you doing? Hey, Orla. It's a pleasure to be back. And we have Stephen. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good, Orla. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. All right, guys. So, look, let's get right into the thick of it. I think you've got a case for us, Carl, and Stephen's going to walk us through it. So, on you go. We do indeed. So, Stephen, congratulations. You're at the Reg working in a mixed adult pediatric emergency department. It's a busy shift. You haven't eaten. There's been a couple of issues that you've troubleshooted or troubleshot. And the pre-alert phone goes off. You have a 16-month-old infant boy. He's coming in with a witnessed three-minute seizure. It was a generalized tonic-clonic from the report. The seizures had subsided, but his GCS is 14 out of 15. He is normal tensive. His sugars are 4.4. And the crew inform you that they are 10 minutes out from the hospital and requesting review on arrival. What do you do? Okay, so first thing is just to get myself ready and get moving. So the zero point survey is always something to kind of look at. So ideally, I want to get myself together. The next thing is then to look at where we're going to bring him. So if we've got a bed and resus or at least a major spade to keep an eye and then to see who's your team, who's the nurses going to be working with you, whether the equipment you're going to need is working. Everything's ready to go until he when once he rocks up. And that's where I'm going to kind of start from. And then just mentally rehearse how you're going to look at this kid when he comes in. So you're going to go through your ABCD, kind of take that approach and then just take it from there. Perfect. What would be your focuses during the ABCD process? Anything you want to think of for planning? Yeah, so like you're going to think about the airway, like he's a 16 month old coming in. So we need to make sure, are you able to actually look at managing his airway properly? And then do you need to consider anything else down the line? Who's good at getting uh, getting bloods or at least getting a line into a 16 month old? I mean, kids are pretty difficult in the circumstances anyway. And then whether or what you're actually treating. So what is it that what is it that's caused this kid to have a seizure in the first place? You know, you need to kind of consider all those other options as well. So what are you going to need, whether it's antibiotics or an LP, you know, that kind of later on stuff. Spot on, spot on. Alex is brought in by the paramedics. His parents are coming with him. They're very visibly distraught. The parents have described a couple of days of coryza. They say he has not had any fevers to their knowledge. This evening, they put him to bed. He was quiet. They were a little worried about him, something instinctive, and they went to check on him and noticed that he was stiff. And then he began to jerk in his arms and legs. As we had mentioned before, it lasted roughly three minutes and then self-limited. He was drowsy after, and when once in the ambulance, he had a single vomit. 
On arrival, his sats are 100% on room air. His respiration is 30. His heart rate is 150. His BP is 90 over 50. And his temperature is 37.2. His GCS on arrival is 15, with pupils three equally left and right, and they are reactive. The paramedics report that he has not been given any benzos or paracetamol en route. So he's had a seizure. He's afebrile. Is it a first seizure presentation? So no history of previous seizure disorder, never had any kind of issues like this. Okay, so this is the first time he's ever had a seizure, basically. Correct. And there's no signs of any infection at the moment that we need to consider either. So that's something like febrile seizures, obviously another concern for a little kid like this fella to consider. So as I said, first seizure presentation, this child was definitely a big issue. He's not a febrile seizure at the moment that we can consider, but certainly we need to consider any other medical causes that could be causing him to be having a seizure, seizure mimic. So whether he's hypoglycemic, whether he's got meningitis, or if he's got any sort of other infection, say like a UTI. Great. On further questioning, you ask mum and dad and their history shows that his birth was at 38 weeks. It was an SVD. He did not require SCABU or NICU. He's been otherwise generally well, no developmental delays so far. His vaccine history is up to date and not on any regular medications. He has no allergies. He hasn't had any sick contacts lately. There is a family history of epilepsy. It's in a first cousin. Alex's mum and dad aren't sure if there was a genetic cause for it. And of note, Alex's brother did have a febrile seizure when he was 12 months old. He was seen in the emergency department at the time and discharged on the same day. Since then, he's been well and has had no further seizures. He's now four years old. On exam, you find that Alex is crying, but he's alert. There's no obvious rashes. You can confirm that he is chorizal with nasal discharge. His airways patent and he's self-ventilating. You pop him in mum's lap and he is quite compliant. He lets you listen to his chest. You've good air entry bilaterally. Heart sounds are okay. Mildly tachycardic but normotensive and his cap refill is less than three seconds. His cap sugars are 4.6. You have a look in his ears. They're clear of any otitis externa or media. His tonsils are clear of any exudate and his tummy's soft. He gives you a good kick, so his power in all four limbs is 5 out of 5, and reflexes are nice and pressed. After your full exam, there are all your positive findings. What way are you thinking now? So, really, it looks like a for a seizure presentation in this little chap, and he's no real medical concerns of note. He's no medical history, even from a perinatal side. So, it makes you wonder whether there is an underlying pathology that's just starting to show its its face, and this seizure is just basically the first time it's decided to manifest itself. So, this ah, but in a kid with that's been nice and snotty for three days, sure, would you not be tempted to think of febrile seizure and it's all? Settled now and no need for further investigation into discharge. It's a good point. Line of duty is on. The parents need to get home to watch it. I think the the issue with this kid is fair enough. While he's been carousel, the big factor is he hasn't been febrile, albeit he does have a family history of febrile seizures in his brother. That is something to consider. But given the fact that he's now returned to normal, he's been otherwise generally well. He's no other kind of confounding factors that would make you flag. I'd still be kind of under the under that sort of thought process of maybe there's something else that we're just not seeing that is hidden there, you know. Okay, so how would that deviate your management from a febrile seizure management? Okay, so for this little kid, so aside from looking at febrile seizure, looking from the underlying causes, we need to consider doing further investigations from our side. So that may include doing bloods and at least an ECG just to see the basics. Okay, anything you'd be looking at in particular in ECG? 
So for that ECG, really what you're considering is I always look at the QTC in every event, but also you're having to go back to your basics, look at the rhythm, look at the rate, see if everything is within its sinus rhythm. So there's nothing deviant kind of showing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And important on the QTC, especially in pediatrics, to actively count it out and do the calculations with, say, Bizet's formula. Okay, so his ECG is performed, normal rate, regular rhythm, narrow complex and a beautifully normal QTC. You successfully get bloods and insert a cannula during the process. You also decide to get a clean catch of the urine. You show the parents how to do this. And luckily, Alex provides this liquid gold in about 15 minutes. I call lies. <laughs> or that you know, I am grossly optimistic. So the urine dipstick is clear for leukocytes and nitrates. You return to the floor, you're pretty happy. You've spoken to Alex's parents and say you're going to observe him for a little bit, at least wait until the bloods come back. And you ask the parents specifically, just keep an eye on him while here. Just see if he's out of sorts or if there's any of the jerking or shaking happening again. You go off to see one of your many other patients, at which time one of your ED nurses notices that Alex has begun to tremble in his cubicle. As soon as you arrive, the parents are frantically trying to rouse him. You call for help and luckily the night shift has just come in. So you have a fellow Reg and another SHO coming in and are free to lend a hand. What are you going to start to do now? Going to start off with start assigning the roles first. So we've got two regs and an SHO if I'm correct. And then we've got our nursing staff ha- right on hand. So the first thing is to kind of get the airway, breathing and circulation under control and assign those roles to the people who are the most comfortable with doing them. So most likely the most senior in the room. The next thing really is a big priority is to get the wet flag. So you're going to need someone who's a scribe to be able to take the time zero. So you know when the seizure has started, you can keep a track of time for when, if you need to give meds later on. But also to have the wet flag up, you need that board there in front of you so you can eyeball what the doses are going to be if you need to give them. And certainly have your nurses there who can get your drugs. Absolutely. And I think you cannot underestimate a scribe during these times. They are one of the single most important roles. A, as you said, time, but B, making sure everything is happening at the right moment and planning forward. I, I completely agree with you. So once you complete a rapid survey, Alex continues to have a generalized tonic, clonic jerking movements in all extremities. His teeth are clenched and his lips cyanotic. You connect him up to a 15 liter non-rebreather and turn him onto his sides. Important to note that you raise the bed railings and attach cushioning to them to prevent any further injury. Alex's parents are absolutely out of their minds with worry at this stage. They're tearful. They really don't want to leave the bedside. Dad's asking a couple of times if he'll be okay, what can he do, how can he help? And you decide it's in their best interest to have them brought to a nearest room and assign a member of the team to chat. So we're at time zero, Stephen. Yeah. And everything that's going on, your mind's a bit of buzz. Is there anything you can use as a help? Yeah, you need to pull out your local guidelines on status epilepticus in paediatrics and have that in front of you, even if you know the guideline backwards. Yeah, you're dead right. And for the purposes of the uh, of this episode, we will be using the APLS status epilepticus algorithm. So you have your algorithm, your team roles are assigned and you've confirmed that IV access is still patent. You're at minute two, you're handed 0.1 mils per kg of IV lorazepam and the nurse hands it to you saying, here you go, doc, can you give it? What are you going to do? 
Mochinol is you're tempted to give it because you know he's seizing. He hasn't hit the five minutes yet and he could very well come out of that seizure before he hits the five minutes. So while your inclination is to give it, you give the kid a chance, let him wait it out. And if he continues to seize after the five minutes, then by all means, give him the Laraz. Yeah, absolutely right. It's really hard to sit back and have an itchy trigger finger. And this is a perfect time to actually communicate with your staff and talk to the team, making sure everyone's on the same page. But it's not minutes to be wasted. So during these five minutes, you could be talking about the airway, making sure it is staying patent. You want to make sure you're suctioning any secretions. And even though IV access has been obtained, you want to make sure it's secure. This is not the time to lose access. Any causes you'd be looking for immediately during these five minutes? Okay, so in terms of causes for this kid, so you're obviously going to consider his sugars. We've already checked his sugars earlier on Correct. when he came in from the paramedics, but it'd be ideal to have a look at this again just to see if anything has changed. You know, it can be dynamic. Um, does he have any rashes? We've examined him earlier on, but again, another re-exam just to see if there's anything extra that's developed in the interim or something that you might have missed is also essential. And the last thing is, has he had a head injury? Did he knock his head at home when the parents weren't watching? You know, kids can do funny things when they aren't being watched and sometimes these can happen so it's no harm to make sure he's no injuries anywhere else yeah absolutely you're spot on and the rashes is a really important point these rashes can come up very fast and it shows that the patient is dynamic and one check mm. does not preclude it from happen from developing so during this time poor little alex he is still actively seizing it's quite rigorous you want to be sure that the patient does not sustain any further injury you have to protect them from harm, but not restrain. It's quite a tightrope walk. So make sure any hard equipment from the bedside has been removed and have a pillow under his head. Okay, your clock chimes five and you start to spring into the action. The seizure is ongoing. He needs the IV lorazepam. You give it and the waiting game starts again. It's now another whopping 10 minutes until you give another medication. What is your next medication, by the way? So you can give another dose of lorazepam. So if you follow the guidelines, you can give two of the lorazepam. Perfect. And you, we had taken bloods earlier, but is there any specific bloods you want to be checking at this point? So we want to have a quick look through his UNEs, see what his calcium looks like, how his coag profile sits, and whether his FBC is showing any sort of dynamic changes, whether it's an infection. So if it's bacterial, or maybe it is viral, um, with those chorizal symptoms he came in with initially. History taken is crucial at this point. Why is that, Stephen? Sure. So, like, you need to find out whether he's taken any of the two drugs that you're going to be prescribing. So, if he's taken phenobarbitone or phenytone, and if he's taken whichever one, you need to give him the opposite equivalent within that treatment. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, we have our drug chosen, it's being prepared, and we're entering step three of status epilepticus. What are you thinking about now? Who do you need? So at this point, you're going to need the consultant. Who's your boss that's on tonight, really, to be able to come in because this child is quite sick? And you're also going to look towards talking to your anesthetics because this kid may end up needing either if you've got a neonatal IC or PICU on site or at least an anesthetic review for trans. Yeah, 100%. You need senior, senior help for these cases. If your phenytone or phenobarbitone is unsuccessful in stopping the seizure at step three, we've only one final management option. Between step three and four, it's a whopping 20 minutes. And what is our management at this point, Stephen? So it's a good question. So you're going to need to look at RSI for this child. So you're going to need to have someone who's capable of being able to do RSI for pediatrics as a pediatric airway itself is quite a difficult one. Um, so you're hoping your boss is going to be there to assist you or at least the anesthetics. So you're going to run through your RSI checklist. You're going to have your, you want to have your IV access secured like we mentioned earlier on. You want to make sure they are actually working for this little fella. And then to confirm that what you're treating is a seizure, that it's not some other 
seizure like seizure mimic that's actually causing the problem. And the last thing then really is we've kind of forgotten about his parents, so we need to keep them updated and let them know as to where he's at. I don't know about you, but I'm getting goosebumps even talking through this stage of the scenario. So it's a frightful scenario for everyone involved. And this is where you need to have a clear cut pathway and a clear cut plan throughout it. Alex, unfortunately, did progress to step four and required intubation. He was successfully intubated. The seizure activity was resolved and he was imaged and then transferred to ICU. There was nil acute on his CT brain and he is currently admitted and awaiting further investigations in ICU. The parents, though distraught, were very thankful for your help and management. So, how do you feel? Yeah, Speed's status epilepticus is always one of those cases, no matter how many times you've been through them, they still manage to shock you. As you know, Carl, like both of us being parents, you also have that fear of having that experience from your own side. So you can see what the parents almost feel too. Seeing both sides of the same coin is not entirely a nice experience. Let's face it. Yeah, yeah it, it affects you very differently when yeah. you, you, you push, you transpose the faces and exactly. you go, oh my God, it could have been. So you bring up parenting as an aspect of it and guaranteed... Once everything settles down, the questions will absolutely come flooding out of the parents. And you have to be prepared for this aspect as well. It's not just seizure ended, walk away. You're going to have to manage that, the rest of the situation. So a couple of questions some parents could ask. What yeah. caused it? What would be your answer? You're going to have to give them an honest answer and tell them you can't really identify what's going on at the moment. You know, you can't really lie and say, well, we have this answer. You have to tell them that ultimately... Sometimes we don't know what it causes. Is he going to have more seizures? That's a question that is, is, it's a hard one too, because it can happen. But at the same time, he's on the medication. He's, we're treating him in the event of that being the case too. So it isn't to say that it couldn't happen, but we're trying to reduce the risk of it happening, you know? Yeah. And what, what about this EEG thing I've heard about? Can we get one now? They're an interesting little investigation, but in this setting within the ED, I mean, we don't have access to it. And in fairness, at the moment in the acute setting, it's not going to help him. The ultimate thing that's going to help him is for us to try and treat him and to get him out of the situation. And then we can take, you know, the further steps that he needs. Well, I tell you, Stephen, if, if I were a parent asking you, I'd be quite reassured because you're honest, you're open, and you've answered every one of my questions in it so far as you can. So, will we talk a bit about seizures and epilepsy? Yeah. Well done, guys. Fantastic case discussion. Stephen, could you take us through just, you know, seizures and epilepsy and the what exactly is status epilepsy? Sure. Because we haven't put you on the spot enough. Yeah. No, it's totally fine. I don't <laughs> mind. It's an inter Yeah, I actually, I like this topic anyway, but like seizures and seizures and epilepsy are two totally different paradigms. And I think everyone has a different uh, interpretation of what it is. So if you look at like the actual definition of what a seizure is, so it's considered to be basically a transient occurrence of symptoms. Basically, you've got neuronal discharge and it can be just one episode, whereas epilepsy is considered to be multiple episodes of seizures. So you don't necessarily have epilepsy by having just one seizure. It's not always like that. And as we know, say even from talking about this case, you can have so many different causes for having a seizure that it's not always just down to one pathology. It can be multiple. So I think having a really firm grasp of the basics sometimes really grounds you in being able to understand what's going on and therefore 
for also being able to kind of answer, say, those questions with this Alex's parents. So status epilepticus really has two definitions. So with a seizure, it's usually a self-terminating event. So whereas a status epilepticus is, can be considered as either two of the following, it's either a seizure, more than two seizures happening within a defined period of time or one protracted seizure. So with Alex here, he kind of fits the more flatter definition in that he's had one seizure and then he's had a further seizure on top of it and the further seizure has protracted into 20, 30 minutes or for however, however long it's gone on. And Carl, you know, we, we kind of mentioned briefly that different different departments around the country obviously will have different protocols for what they want to do with patients um, presenting with seizure, febrile or otherwise, first presentation or otherwise. But, the, you know, the red flags are, are common amongst all departments and all presentations. So what would make you worried in a history if a child comes in with a seizure? Yeah, no, great question, Orla. Is the red flags are for absolutely every patient, if there was a preceding head injury, if there was any kind of de developmental delay or aggression, preceding headache is a big worry sign. I would never let a child out of the department without a, a thorough investigation with a headache causing seizure. If they have any kind of bleeding disorder, any anticoagulation on board, if there was intoxication. So as we mentioned with the ECG, you'd be looking at the QTC. One thing I always look for is the QRS complex, tricyclic antidepressants, you never know if somewhere somewhere lying around and a child picked them up accidentally ingested or worse intentionally ingested one of the biggest things to outrule is focal neurological signs so once the seizure has been terminated obviously not for alex's case because he's intubated but in a single seizure presented as a parent any kind of neurological sign be it subtle needs further investigation yeah, it, great. And then, so they're the red flags that we'd be looking at and thinking, okay, this this child definitely is not going home, no matter whether or not it was febrile or not, or first seizure presentation or not. And, but what if it wasn't a seizure? What can, you know, we hear about seizure mimics and stuff, but what exactly are they? These could be really common and they could imitate an epileptic seizure quite well. One of the biggest things is syncope with anoxic seizure activity. If we had a cardiac dysrhythmia, such as long QT syndrome, which could be previously undiagnosed. Very common in the younger children is breath holding spells and a significant 15% or up to 15% could have a generalized hypoxic seizure. Sleep disorders can occur as well. They are a bit less common, which includes say narcolepsy or cataplexy. And interestingly, some atypical migraines could present with seizure-like activity. So Stephen, we kind of, we talked about status epilepticus and how the definition of that has changed recently. And it's now that if your seizure activity is longer than five, it's counted as status epilepticus. Or if you have um, multiple seizures and you don't regain to baseline in between them. And we talked about having our algorithm together and working down through it. We gave a number of drugs to Alex in this case. Let's talk about doses because doses are always a little bit difficult and particularly in paediatrics, we want to know exactly what we're giving. So what doses will we use for for the drugs? That's a good question because doses, you know, are they're key in this case. So for the phenytone dose, then it was 20 milligrams per kilogram. Um, that's given IV, but it's given slowly rather than given as a massive push. And then if you're talking about Kepra, which is sometimes mentioned, um, albeit there's a bit of disparity about whether who gives Kepra or gives phenytone. You can look at Kepra and it's 40 milligrams per kilogram and that's over five minutes as an IV dose. Kepra being levetiracetam just for exactly. our listeners. Great. Interestingly, so we've been quite quite lucky in terms of our access or our ability to gain access. If we had someone who was peripherally shut down 
quite rigorous in their seizure activity. Anything you could use as a first line alternative if you don't have IV? Yeah, so in terms of the access, so you always have other routes. IV is always the key, is always the one you always want to get. But in fairness, if you have to go buccal, you go buccal. And if you have to go rectal, fair enough, you've got rectal diazepam too. But again, you're also bearing in mind, if you go the rectal route, it might take longer. The buccal midazolam and the IV, you know, they're more preferable because they have more rapid onset of action. And it's handy for a memory like mine that they're both 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. I like nice, easy numbers. So, Carl, we were talking about Alex and Alex was a 16-month-old child and we were well able to use our APLS guidelines for the management of his status epilepticus. If he was, say, under three months, would our management have changed? Yeah, you're dead right. And, and even his presentation may be changing, so it may not be your straightforward tonic-clonic, these um, neonates, they could present with an altered a consciousness level. They may be hyper-alert, more irritable, lethargic. They may even have diminished spontaneous movements. Feeding difficulties and respiratory difficulties are always our, one of our big red flags for neonates. And their tone could be off. They could be posturing. They could be decorticate or decerebrate. If it's immediately after birth, they could ha- have low APGARs. And some of the risk factors that could pre- uh, precede or some of the risk factors could, that could, what is the word I'm looking for? Some of the risk factors associated would be difficulties during the birth or a maternal medical history. So you want to break down between neonate and an infant. And it's just really for the terminology. So what do you do when a neonate does present in status epilepticus? Your algorithm does change. You want to, you want to make sure you have it in front of you again. But your first line agent now becomes phenobarbital. The dose starts with uh, still with a 20 milligram per kilogram slow IV loading dose. And it's followed by a repeat 30 minutes later when it's required. Phenytone does remain the second line. And again, it's 20 milligrams per kilogram as a slow IV push. Your third line agent is levetiracetam. And that would usually be 40 milligrams per kilogram. Okay. So, Stephen, we'll just finish up maybe and just on a little quick note, I suppose, between Kepra versus Phenytone, because depending on the on the guidelines that your institution might be using, one or other might be in there as your second line agent. Are there any papers that our listeners could maybe have a little perusal of? Oh, yeah. There's always research on drugs, as we know ourselves. And this is my topic as an academic. So basically, we have two trials. We look at the Eclipse and the Concept trials. And these were really big trials. They were discussed at Orchem a few years ago. Um, I heard the conferences myself and they were really big on looking at how Kepra or are commonly known as Vaderacetam can be now used in pediatrics and um, within status epilepticus. Basically, these trials, we're looking at whether or not Kepra can be used as our second line agent rather than just phenytone or phenobarbitone. In terms of the studies themselves, they're an interesting kind of study what they're looking into, but I'm not entirely, entirely sure if they really answer that question. A lot of the feeling around the studies is that they still say, let's go with our usuals, which is phenytone. But I guess it is always going to be doctor and your local policy dependent. Good stuff. Carl, what would be your pearls of wisdom to take home from this case? Not necessarily from this case, but I know one issue that does kind of cause a lot of trepidation for NCHDs is when is it safe to discharge a first presentation seizure if it is within the local policy? So my criteria are absence of red flags, child has returned and maintains their baseline status. It's been an isolated, self-limiting, simple, generalized tonic-clonic, so less than five minutes and no um, in- interventions required. You've outruled a serious infection. Absolutely quintessential to this is the parents have been educated and they're happy with discharge. 
you, they need some written information, a leaflet, any kind of resources to go home with and that you can ensure medical follow-up and this is absolutely needed after a first seizure. Stephen, what's your take home, Pearl? So the one thing I always remember is a seizure is not always just down to someone having epilepsy. You need to always consider that it could be something else. So we've spoken about the cardiac complaints like a cardiac syncope or long QT or certainly those TCAs that your grandparents happen to have in their handbag. Unfortunately, kids can take these things and have them. So just be aware. Great. And I've got two. My first one is always have a weight on the child when they come in, even if they're well at the time, because if you have a weight on them before anything might kick off, your drug doses are obviously going to be much more correct. And then my second one is physically know where your department guidelines are. So if anyone's listening to this episode and they're not sure where they could put their hands immediately on their uh, paediatric status epilepticus guidelines in their department, head in on your next day on floor and find out where they are, be they online or printed somewhere, but just be able to put your hands on it and then you know where it is for the next time. That actually reminds me, some departments may have specific policies for specific patients that they have been seeing before with established epilepsy or different disorders. So make sure that if there is a specific algorithm for your patient, that it that is identified early. Excellent point. Excellent point. That and I thought status epilepticus was a gladiator. <laughs> I think he fought status asthmaticus in the uh, in the Galilean Wars against Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, but they, they just ran out of breath. Good to have you back. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much for chatting through our case with us today. And next up, we'll have our adult in the room correcting our homework. So thanks for joining us, Stephen and Carl, and hopefully see you next time. We'll thanks do. a million, Orla. It's again. always a pleasure. Thanks again. See you later. So I hope you all enjoyed that case. I think this is a good time for a little small plug for Dr. Mike Dunphy, a previous TCR contributor who won Best NCHD Project at the Irish Healthcare Awards this year for his quality improvement project on medication administration times in paediatric status epilepticus. So well done, Mike. Next up, we have our adult in the room, Dr. Paddy Fitzpatrick, a PEM consultant in Temple Street Children's Hospital, Dublin. He's involved in cross-site training and is an avid teacher in EM, and he's here to correct our homework. Hi, Carl. Uh, thanks for um, inviting me here and well done to um, yourself and Orla and Stephen for a very well worked out case. I think you did very well. I think you um, recognised the paediatric emergency um, of status epilepticus um, and then effectively went through the algorithm to um, to arrest the seizure, which took a good bit of work from the, from the sense of a lot of time. It's a stressful emergency in any environment uh, within the paediatric emergency department and especially within the mixed department where you may not see this um, every day. So... Most of the time in my practice, we would have the family member um, in the resource room during the, the status event when appropriate. Um, a lot of the time, these are children who've got underlying seizure disorder. So it's not the first time necessarily that the, the parent has seen a seizure. Uh, and that's fine, provided you can have you have you know some members of staff that can help um, assist, answer their questions and support them because it's a pretty stressful time for the parent to watch their child uh, in status epilepticus. But in any situation where the parent is too distressed or where the parent may be interfering with the performance of the team or, 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 dist- or more of a distraction, then, then it's appropriate that they, we can invite it to, to sit in the family room and, uh, again, be supported by one of our colleagues, either in usually a, a nursing or a social care team. 
when when the child comes in, I think Stephen did a very good job of going through a very thorough assessment and recognised that there was an isolated, unprovoked afebrile seizure and the child was well and wanted to observe the child for a bit longer. I think that was very appropriate. But then when this when this seizure recommenced, I think thinking about the, the potential etiologies, and I think Stephen did a good job at working his way through um, what the potential etiologies from a blood glucose perspective or from a, a trauma or um, you know, encephalitis, all of the other um, differentials. So I think working through the differentials is important. I think recognizing the emergency. So these are the kind of events that can sometimes escalate in the recess room. I'm sure you've been here before, Carl, and many people have where, you know, you've got a person who's not that sick in the recess room and then they get a bit sicker and then they start seizing and then they get a bit sicker. And then all of a sudden you've gone from one or two, you know, healthcare professionals to a whole team. And sometimes that's a little bit more challenging to organize the team than compared to when it's a, you've had a pre-alert from the, from the pre-hospital practitioners to tell you that there's a, a patient coming in. So I think recognizing, which again, Stephen seemed to do this quite well, recognize that was a, this is now um, a, an emergency. We need to allocate a team leader, allocate roles in the team and call for the appropriate help and pull out the cognitive aids to, to assist with, with going through the algorithm. So they're all very important things that I would think that, that helps us you know, effectively run the, this, the resource um, as, as efficiently as possible so that we don't miss anything and we get the appropriate drugs at the appropriate times. And I noticed that towards the end of, of the, the case, when you're discussing it, you're going through drug doses. And I'd be suggesting to listeners, don't listen to the drug doses. Don't try to remember them, but always know where your algorithm is. Always know where to find them in emergency and, how, and, and be very familiar with the algorithm so that you can, in a stress environment, work out where you need to be. But don't try to remember doses because you want to use as much cognitive bandwidth as possible for your decision making in the case rather than thinking about drug doses or um, or when to give the drug rely on the cognitive aids for that but just know where to find them whether it's on your phone app or whether it's we have them laminated on a wall in our resource room that we just pull them off and we have the scribe or the team leader can hold them and as you mentioned there's there's multiple algorithms out there you APLS is in a well-established one that's endorsed by the ALS, ALSG and um, if that's if you have no other algorithm, then I would suggest the APLS one is, is perfect to give. But also, also just you, you find out what your local alg- algorithm is and be familiar with it. Where I work in CHI in Temple Street, we have an algorithm that's slightly different to what's used in other parts of CHI. We are working towards a a single algorithm, and that will be then published on the on the internet so that anybody can can access it. Yeah, you're thinking about etiologies. You're thinking about could this be a primary CNS infection? Could this be meningitis? Could it be um, encephalitis in, in the situation it seemed a little bit unlikely because the child was very well just before he started so knowing how the child was and, and having the opportunity to assess the child beforehand could reassure you that it's unlikely to be encephalitis if the child wasn't encephalopathic and febrile and unwell beforehand or unlikely to be meningitis if they weren't meningitic beforehand but thinking about you know during those time those pauses where you have time to between the anti-epileptic drugs and thinking about whether um, it's an opportunity that you need to start antibiotics or um, antivirals uh, at that stage you mentioned, I think, a couple of times in the ideologies that potentially um, is there a history of head trauma, but also, especially in these younger children, think about where there, there may be head trauma, but it may not be apparent in the history. And what I'm trying to get at, I suppose, is, is non-accidental injury or abusive head trauma, which we, we could sometimes present as seizure, uh, often in these smaller kind of infants or toddler age groups. I think some of the other little tips that I would give along the way, um, you, I think, again, during the the assessment of the of the seizure and ECG was done. I thought that was very appropriate at that stage of the case, and working your way through. Just a top tip is that the ECG clinical clinical practice guideline is on the um, the website, the CHI website, which you'll find in olchc.ie. 
and that's a useful aid memoir or kind of a checklist, I should say, for um, interpreting the paediatric ECG. So if you're not used to it, we uh, do it for every ECG we do in the emergency department across the HI and we, um, it's there and available for anybody to use um, around the country. So it's a nice little thing to, to do. So, yeah, so the, the vast majority of children who come with simple, unprovoked seizures. So the, well, I suppose the majority that we would see are probably the febrile convulsions. So they're the, the ones that are provoked by a, a febrile illness. And occasionally you can see children who will have a seizure during a febrile illness, but they weren't febrile at the time of the of the, the seizure event. And, and sometimes we call that a, still a provoked seizure or a symptomatic seizure or a, sometimes an afebrile febrile seizure. So for those febrile seizures, the, um, if we're confident that's what it is and we're happy that the child is, as well, you're happy that the underlying infectious etiology isn't a serious bacterial illness or something that needs to be managed then those children can be discharged home with, with advice. And really the difficult part of those cases is is how you counsel the parents. And that's probably a, a podcast in itself, to be honest. For the children who have unprovoked seizures, so children who have de, you know, de novo unprovoked seizures that are short-lived, there's just one episode um, and they're otherwise well, have a normal neurological assessment and no other neurological symptoms that would suggest other etiology. The practice will vary a little bit. To be honest, most of those children don't need any um, investigation. So most children with a, a, a simple unprovoked seizure, generalized seizure, don't need any further investigations. And the basis of that, of that is really that, that the, the lifetime, lifetime prevalence of seizure is quite high. So about 9 to 10% of the population will have a seizure at some stage of their life. Um, so there's no need to investigate every um, first unprovoked seizure. Your local practice and your local policies might, and pathways might be a little bit different. So know what they are. If there's recurrent seizures or seizures that are a bit unusual, they will likely require um, a, a pediatric follow-up. So, you know, booking an EEG uh, and organizing your, your general pediatric patient clinic to see them is probably the next appropriate pathway. Again, there'll be local variances about who takes these children on. So have, knowing your local pathways is probably the, the best advice to give there. If a child's particularly unwell or there's a doubt about the ideology or they have multiple episodes or um, or they present with status, and they, they will likely need admission under, under, into a paediatric unit for observation at, at the very least. Uh, I thought it did an excellent job. Um, the only bit of negative feedback I have for yourself, Carl, is that um, I loved your puns at, at the end, but you, you missed the obvious Julius seizure when you're onto the, the Roman puns, but uh, you'll know for next time. Next up, we have our echo chamber with TCR veteran Callum. He's speaking to Dr. Emma Fotou-Lamar, who's a consultant in Cork University Hospital with a special interest in PEDS ultrasound. Let's hear what they have for us this month. Sorry, Emma, thanks so much for coming on uh, the Case Dot Report and on the Echo Chamber. We're delighted to have you on and have your incredible experience in, in pediatric emergency medicine um, to talk about ultrasound. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just can you describe a little bit about your training so far and you know how you got to be a pediatric consultant? Yeah, so I trained in Canada. I became a pediatrician first, and then I did a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship again in Canada in Montreal. Afterwards, I moved to Australia to conduct some research in pediatric emergency medicine and sedation. And mostly my research has focused on trauma and sedation. And then I'm now a consultant in, at Cork University Hospital. Superb. 
And I mean, both Canada and Australia are both countries that are fairly forward looking with their ultrasound use. So do you find um, you're bringing more ultrasounds to the your daily practice than perhaps some of your Irish trained colleagues? Yeah, definitely. I've only been here since July. When I first got credentialed in Canada for POCUS and pediatric emergency medicine in 2013, there was this great enthusiasm for fast and trauma and, and lots of applications. And over time, some evidence emerged about the limitations and how to best use it. And then moving to Australia, they had a again a different practice and different applications. And moving here, definitely I'm bringing POCUS back and my colleague here, Rory O'Brien, also uses it because he's trained in Australia as well. But yeah, it's interesting to see different philosophies across uh, three continents, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the possibilities are pretty endless in terms of both transferring adult uses and then specific pediatric uses, whether yes. it's IV mm. access, you mentioned ultrasound and trauma, looking at pneumonias, mm. abscesses, mm. foreign bodies, torsion, intersections, exactly. appendicitis. Yeah fractures, nerve blocks. So were you credentialed in, in lots of that stuff or are you kind of um, learning as you go and choose, picking yeah. and choosing which modalities you prefer to use? So what I find interesting about all those applications is that if you think of anything you could look at with a probe, you'll find a study in pediatric emergency medicine testifying to how, how easy it is to teach and for emergency practitioners to become proficient at identifying said pathology. But those those studies come from centers usually in North America where there's 30 consultants and fi five of them will be the POCUS leads and they're constantly scanning and teaching and they have po dedicated POCUS fellowships. And so the, as you say, the applications are endless and then it comes down to yourself having the um, insight to know your own limitations and, and knowing how much you've been trained and how much supervision you've got. So when I got trained first, I got my scan certified mostly for trauma. And I also did like adults, triple A's, that kind of thing. But then all the other applications, I sort of learned for mentors and didn't get, say, 30 scans certified for looking at hips or looking at soft tissue. So I'm just aware of my own limitations and go from there, really. I think that's a really important point for, for anything in medicine, but especially ultrasound, where a lot of it is learning on the job. And is it similar with adult ultrasound that if you kind of stick to the rule-in concept rather than excluding pathologies, then you're, you're protecting yourself and your patients from, your, from misdiagnosis yeah. and error? Yeah. So, well, I've never trained in adult emergency. I've done uh, six months of it during my training. So I wouldn't be as aware of the reasons why you use it usually. But in terms of ruling in, using POCUS as a yes-no tool ver or a rule-in tool, let's say, versus an extension of your physical exam and and taking whatever information you find as part of you know, integrating it to the information that you've already got. I think th those are two different focus philosophies. So we can go into specific applications for children later. But in terms, if you're talking about ruling in, do you mean more for trauma, let's say? Yeah, so usually the, the specificity is higher than the sensitivity. Yeah. So if you, if you yeah. see a pathology, yeah. exactly. you're usually right. But if you don't see one, it might still be there. So it's, it's safer usually to say yeah. to rule in pathologies yeah. than to rule them out. 
So I guess this is a good opportunity to talk about FAST or eFAST and pediatric trauma, because that's where like this sort of philosophy or ruling in will play into. So the the thing about FAST or eFAST in pediatric trauma or the limitations or pitfalls with it is that if you see fluid, it could be physiological fluid. So the ruling in there, like depending on how good your machine is and how good you are, about 7% of children have free fluids. So you might see something that isn't correlated with pathology. And then you have a good proportion of children who have significant intra-abdominal in- injury without hemoperitoneum. So that's about 30% or 40% where, you know, what you're saying about ruling in plays into if you don't see it doesn't mean that there's no significant injury. And also if there is a large amount of free fluid, it doesn't mean laparotomy because most children don't undergo laparotomy for liver lax or splenic lacerations either. You think, why am I going to use it then? Because there are rules that perform much better than FAST in terms of deciding whether to to perform a CT scan in a child or not. So you can look, but how are you going to use that information knowing the sensitivity, which is depending on studies, 20 to 80%. And it's very specific. As I said, it's only 7% of uh, of children that will have free physiological fluids. In the end, with all that put together, ATLS and APLS don't necessarily endorse uh, FAST for children. Now, where I think it does really have a role is for the E component, the chest component, because children are very easy to scan and usually very echogenic, and you will see free fluid in the chest or a or a pericardial effusion. So which you need to act upon. So for that, I find this very useful, but it's not it's not yet endorsed. Yeah, I mean, that, that would actually be pretty similar to my practice with using it in adult trauma in that the abdominal component really changes my decision-making about whether they need a scan. Yeah. Yeah. The thoracic components, seeing a pericardial fusion or seeing pleural effusions or pneumothorax, those are quite significant findings and would definitely prompt interventions before CT, for example, if someone had a pneumothorax and was unstable. So like anything, it's just, it's, you've got to be, take it in a clinical context and incorporate yeah. it into your decision-making in a, in a reasoned way. Yeah. Talking about chest, you know, do you use it for pneumonias, pediatric pneumonias? Yeah, that's interesting because that's one use that's uh, well described in, in, um, in the literature. And what's interesting about pediatric pneumonias in the first place is that nobody knows who we need to treat and who do we not need to treat with antibiotics. So, you know, there was a randomized controlled trial recently where children with clear tachypnea and borderline SATs, you know, children with clinical pneumonias would go home on antibiotics or not, and there was no difference in their outcome. So pediatric pneumonias, detecting subpleural consolidations is well described in the POCUS literature. But for me, I haven't adopted it as a user because for me to treat a pneumonia in a child or a lower respiratory tract infection, because you never know if it's viral or bacterial, et cetera, it does take, it, my threshold is quite high to give antibiotics. And whether I did see a subpleural consolidation or not would not change how I would manage a child. Interesting. I wonder whether that's an emerging research possibility in terms of quantifying the burden of consolidation and using that to, to 
trigger antibiotics or something appeared. But I think there's not even consensus as to who yeah. to give antibiotics to. And even on a chest x-ray, you know, if you have a obvious large consolidation, but the vast majority of children that go home with antibiotics don't have a consolidation. Maybe the ones that stay in, to- in hospital have something significant on x-ray, but certainly not the patients that go home. And a lot of the time they have, you know, peribronchial thickening with, you know, patchy infiltrates. And so there's not even a gold standard for treating pneumonias. So I think it, it'd be hard then to, to design a study comparing yeah. x-rays versus versus ultrasound and the burden of subpleural consolidation on ultrasound. Uh, so I think that's a that's a very hazy or, you know, unclear area in terms of application of POCUS. What would be your most commonly used applications then on a, on a regular basis? Well, my most by far would be anything proced- procedural. So I think for peripheral intravenous access, it is a godsend. Like the, the more senior you get, the more you're asked for help when there's difficult IV access. And there's nothing more disheartening than having a child to resuscitate and nobody can get access and, and where you're faced with your own limitation with access. And so once I became very proficient at obtaining ultrasound-guided peripheral access, it gives me such peace of mind <laughs> when I'm working. So yeah, that by far. And it's also very handy when you have children with either complex background or neurodisability or where they've had numerous attempts with lots of scarred veins and and have difficult access for that reason. So not just the, the tiny babies. So that by far is the the where I use it the most. Then for SPAs, suprapubic aspirates for, for neonatal septic workups. When you do see a bladder that's seems full, that's usually when it's not collapsible on your linear probe you increase your success rate from 50% to about 80 or 90 by verifying that there's actually we in the bladder. And it also gives you an idea of where to insert your needle. So I use it for that. And then procedurally, I guess after that, there's the um, femoral nerve blocks, but that wouldn't really be considered POCUS. It would be really your standard practice of performing nerve blocks. But I, I do think for children, it should be common practice or gold standard or to, to provide that form of analgesia for them before they go into traction. Super. And just going back to the IV access, where would your most commonly used site be? In the antecubital fossa? Or- yeah. So in general, healthy children will have a good cephalic vein just if you approach it near, just near the, the elbow. It's on the proximal forearm. So that'd be my first go-to. And I put it a bit away from the elbow just so that you then don't need to splint the arm. So that's way more comfortable or has more handy, you know, because it won't occlude easily with with flexion. Then afterwards, just in the anterior forearm, you'll you'll often find something there. And when the if if a child is less than three months often the the veins in the form will be so superficial that you can easily go through the vein without just by entering the skin so so then i might take the cephalic but on the upper arm and usually i i would try to leave the basilic for i try to save it if they ever need a, a pick line later so that that would be in just where when i really cannot find anything 
in general, I find young babies, they also got, have a good saphiness in their, just in the distal tibia, proximal to your medial malleolus. Super. Yeah, I couldn't agree more in terms of the utility of using ultrasound for IV access is something I'm very keen on in mm. adults, especially when they're sick, because there's nothing worse than having someone who has a prolonged delay in, in getting appropriate treatment because no yeah. one can get IV access. Yeah. Or having yeah. multiple sticks and like, especially in kids where each needle stick is traumatic for them. Yeah. They're not going to tolerate mm -hmm. five different attempts from five different people. Um, yeah. So to get it first time is, is yeah. as you say, a godsend. Are there any specific cases that stick out in your memory where pony care ultrasound really made a difference? Yes. My favorite would be, I was in Melbourne and a fellow there and a young child say I think around 10 months of age presented with uh, vomiting and looking very flat and in, in what seemed like pains and and got a category two triage category because he was quite tachycardic and he looked to me he had a painful episode in front of me and I think so by the time I saw him from triage had maybe been 10 minutes then I saw him I thought oh this looks like intussusception I've seen this a few times on POCUS, but I wouldn't be that confident looking for it myself. So the consultant in charge happened to be the POCUS leads for the department. So I went and I got him. Within five minutes, we found the the, the donut sign. So we we found the intercession, which is actually quite easy to find when it when it is there. And so we called the radiology reg and we said, uh, prepare yourself for the air enema because we're coming and I'm bringing the machine to show it to you. So we, I get IV access to provide morphine to the child during the air enema. We wheel the child to, to radiology with our ultrasound machine, with the images saved. We show it to the radiology reg. I'm phoning the the surgical reg at the same time for him to be present during the procedure. And I think his time from like tr triage to, to the air enema was less than an hour. And yeah, that was very satisfying. That's yeah. I like the, the sharing the images with the specialties. I, I often do that <laughs> yeah. as a way yeah. to, to get them on board earlier and to show them because they know what they're looking for. And when you show yeah. it to them in the ED and they see it on the screen, that their decisions made instantly and they can exactly relax. exactly because they wouldn't necessarily take your word for it and fair enough you're not a sonographer but definitely showing it to them shows them that uh, you know what you're doing superb uh, well that's fantastic there's so much useful information there and I, i'm excited i haven't done a, a long i did peds as an sho but i'm looking forward to being a pediatric registrar and getting to use a lot of these things and um and practice them uh, any kind of emerging frontiers that you think are going to be hugely impactful in the future? Any any areas that you think are developing fast? Like I do think that that's where um, a lot of energy should be focused in terms of training. The and that's where a lot of your adult skills are transferable. There's interesting literature in terms of cardiac echo and in Pete's recess, for example, that the the IVC collapsibility doesn't correlate with fluid responsiveness, which you would sort of assume. And for me, there's key cases where two or three times a year in large centers, you'll get a myocarditis or dilated cardiomyopathy that presents as an as a bronchiolitis because they they have uh, pulmonary edema and and just getting that probe on the patient would give you the the diagnosis because by the time they get that sick they're 
they they have grossly decreased systolic function and then you're you're not bolusing them you're not treating them as sepsis so i i do think that that's an underuse area of uh, pete's focus super that's fantastic uh, thanks so much for for chatting to us it's really great chatting to you emma thank you you're welcome callum So that's it for this month's show. I hope you've enjoyed. As always, give us a like if you liked what you heard and follow if you really enjoyed it. We're available on all your major podcast platforms. And it's back to real life from us. It's a bye from me, Orla, and the rest of the TCR gang. May your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.